Thank you, Brian, for that time of prayer for the life of the church and beyond. It is a great privilege, an honor, a joy for myself and my wife, Mary Alice, to be back here with you at First Evangelical Church. And I am excitedly anticipating these four Sundays together as we meditate God's Word from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. I bring you greetings from our home church just west of Atlanta, Georgia, where we have the privilege now, having moved back from Europe this past July, being members of the church of, which is pastored by our son-in-law, and it's a joy to sit under the ministry of the word that is given there. I also bring you greetings from my colleague from Chad, Désiré Beadoum. Uh, whom this church has supported. You enabled him to move through his theological studies, and that has been a, a tremendous encouragement in his life and ministry, better equipping him for the ministry that we share together. I not only bring you these greetings, but I also bring with me the frigid Arctic air of Sioux Falls, South Dakota, as I just returned from there yesterday, when I left Sioux Falls Airport, it was minus 20. And I'm very thankful that by God's grace, I arrived in time, even with a left engine that was not working and delayed our flight for over an hour. But praise be to the Lord, I'm here and I am looking forward to these next moments together. May God's word warm our hearts. I invite you to stand with me in honor of God and His Word as we read Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, we ask you today to speak to our hearts, to open our minds, to help us to hear from you. And we thank you that though the battle rages around us, we are firm, established, protected in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would remind us, Lord, today from this passage of the truths that you want us to hear and apply in our lives. We ask it all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. You may be seated. About a year before my wife and I left the U.S. to minister in France, I was speaking with a good friend and veteran of that country, and with my youthful and most likely idealistic enthusiasm, I was expressing my excitement about tackling the challenges of ministry in Europe. And I'll never forget my friend looking at me straight in the eye and saying, David, you better put on your spiritual boxing gloves. 
I didn't quite understand what he meant at the moment, but his words were prophetic. From day one of our ministry, it was a fight. Probably no more so than when we began to mobilize prayer for that country. Now, if you want a ministry that is popular and to which people flock in mass, don't choose prayer. But if you want a ministry that stirs up the fury of the devil, there's no better choice. About six years into our ministry, I began to meet with two other leaders in that country, a French pastor from Paris named Joël, and a French evangelist from Marseille on the Mediterranean named René. And we picked a location along the Rhone River Valley near where we lived, a mountain that soon became our prayer mountain. As we met there, praying over that country, we covenanted together to work, to continue to mobilize prayer, realizing that it would be only through prayer, releasing the work of God's Spirit, that could push back the veil of agnosticism and atheism that so characterizes the country of France. And it was there that we particularly began to experience spiritual warfare as I had never known it before. Within a few months, the wife of Joël came down with a terminal illness which eventually took her life. The evangelist René lost his job and also lost his ministry support and could no longer continue in the ministry. And then I myself came down with a clinical depression in desperate need of spiritual renewal, forcing my wife and me and our family to return to the States. 1991-1992. By the way, this church, First Evan, stood with us faithfully that entire year and beyond and never considered us a casualty of the mission field. David, if you come to France, you better put on your spiritual boxing gloves. Let me ask you today, as we begin this series, do you know what it means to put on the spiritual boxing gloves in your own life? Or to use the words of the Apostle Paul in this passage, do you know what it means to stand firm against the attacks of the adversary? Do you know what it means to stand firm spiritually in your own life as an individual? In the life of your family? Do we know as the church what it means to stand firm? That, my friends, is what Ephesians chapter 6 is all about. A lesser well-known theologian of the 4th century of Agrius of Pontus once said this, The further the soul advances, the greater are the adversaries against which it must contend. I fear that some Christians today have the mistaken notion that the further the soul advances, the easier the Christian life becomes. And granted, to a certain degree, the more you and I understand who we are in Christ, our identity in Christ, the better able we are able to put to death the old life and to claim the full authority that we have in Jesus Christ, 
Nevertheless, the battle rages and will rage all the more and extremely fiercely. No, the further the soul advances, the greater are its adversaries and the more fiercely they will attack. Personally, I don't like conflict. Do you? I tend to be more of a harmonizer, personality-wise, and maybe you are too. And yet we need to be reminded right off as we approach this passage that there are only four chapters in the Word of God that are absent of conflict. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and Revelation chapters 21 and 22. The other 1,185 chapters are full of both relational and spiritual conflicts. We cannot avoid conflict any more than we can avoid weeds in our garden. Our God is a warrior, as revealed on the pages of Holy Writ. And to the degree that you and I identify with the God of the Bible, we have to admit that we are engaged in spiritual warfare. Little wonder that Paul devotes so much time to this at the end of Ephesians chapter 6 and in many other passages of the Word of God, speaking of this titanic struggle that is ours as believers. Many have called these verses the manual on spiritual warfare. And even though Paul may not in these verses address all that there is to say about our spiritual conflict, nevertheless, here we have the essential truths, both concerning our adversary as well and more importantly concerning our identity as believers in Jesus Christ. This is a clarion call to fight the right battle with the right resources. Let's talk first this morning about what the right battle really is. Notice with me in verse 12, the beginning of the verse, our struggle. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. While in the other verses, beginning in verse 13, the Apostle Paul uses the analogy of a soldier in combat. Here he depicts our warfare by means of a wrestler on the gymnasium floor. On the battlefield, soldiers can remain relatively removed, particularly in our day and age with our sophisticated weaponry, from up-close contact with the enemy. Not so on the gymnasium mat, the gymnasium floor. I mean, after all, when two people are about to wrestle, they don't stand at opposite ends of the mat. In launching verbal assaults at one another, <laughs> throwing objects at one another. Unless, of course, maybe you're watching TNA Wrestling, which is making a comeback this year. No, they are involved in hand-to-hand, body-to-body struggle. First, the Apostle Paul tells us in this verse just what our struggle is not. Notice, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. In other words, we do not wrestle against other people. Oh, actually, we do. 
And to the degree that you and I are involved in fighting others, holding bitterness in our hearts, lack of forgiveness towards others within the life of the church, to that very degree, you and I have absolutely mistaken the identity of the true enemy. No, we do not fight against flesh and blood. That's not where the battle is. The battle is against the powers that lie behind other individuals and behind us and that desire to work havoc in the life of the church and division throughout society. We do not fight ultimately against those who are outside of the church, that is, unbelievers and the surrounding culture. The church of Jesus Christ has never been called to some type of culture war. And again, to the degree that we are involved in some type of culture war, to that degree we have mistaken the identity of our adversary. Ever since the 4th century in the days of Constantine, whenever the church has futilely tried to Christianize society from the top down, there have only been disastrous consequences. Not only is our enemy not those who are outside of the church, whether it be unbelievers or the surrounding culture, our true enemy is not those who are right in front of us, other believers, those who share the same pew with us within the church. And that is precisely why the Apostle Paul deals with this issue of spiritual warfare in this epistle, which has as its primary theme relational unity of the church. For that is what our enemy wants to destroy. Essentially, the Apostle Paul is saying this, in all the relationships that I have just spoken of, whether it be between husbands and wives, parents and children, employers and employees, other ethnicities, cultures, classes, or even age groups within the life of the church, your real battle is not there. It is rather against the powers of darkness which are very real and want to work havoc in the life of the church to deceive, to divide, and to destroy. And it is those very powers that Paul speaks of in this verse in the latter part. Notice, he says now what our real battle is against. We wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You know, in any war, an efficient, an efficient intelligence agency is absolutely indispensable. If we don't understand or if we underestimate our enemy, we will go out to battle unprepared and unarmed. And so that's why Paul goes into detail in this verse, giving us these rather descriptive titles that describe for us what we could call the boardroom of hell or Satan's general headquarters. These... Descriptive titles paint a picture of giant, grotesque spiritual beings that might resemble Darth Vader of Star Wars or Lord Saruman of Lord of the Rings. 
we need to understand that as we come to a passage like this, we tend to carry with us a certain amount of baggage. And that baggage consists, first of all, of our Western world view. You'll see up on the screen what our Western worldview is like. It's basically viewing the universe with only two spheres of reality. There is the sphere of the supernatural, that is of God, for those who believe in God, and religion. And then there is the realm of the natural, that is of man and of science. However, the biblical world is quite different. The biblical worldview is this. There are actually three realms in the universe. There is not only the realm of God and of man, but there is also what has become, unfortunately, the excluded middle in the minds of many people and even an excluded middle in the minds of many believers today. And that is the realm of angels and demons. This invisible world that is in between. But we cannot, we cannot fail to take seriously the reality of what the Apostle Paul deals with in this verse. For we cannot win in the battle unless we believe that there is a battle to win. So what is it exactly that makes up the boardroom of hell? Satan's general headquarters. The Apostle Paul here defines, delineates several of the spiritual powers of darkness. First of all, he mentions the rulers. The term that he uses seems to refer to powerful spiritual beings that exert influence over various people groups and cultures. In fact, the very term that Paul uses in his own New Testament language is also used in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 10, in the Greek Old Testament to refer to the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece. My friends, these are not human rulers. The prince of Persia and prince of Greece are supernatural beings that influence those respective cultures and people groups. Paul also mentions here the term authorities, most likely referring to dark spiritual beings that find their governmental counterpart in socio-political structures of our day. And then he makes reference to the cosmic powers in spiritual places. The term, or cosmic powers over this present darkness, rather. Actually, Paul here uses a term which is unique to the Apostle Paul. It is only used here in the New Testament, but it is found throughout the magical and astrological literature of the day. It seems to refer to those demonic beings that promote false religion and ideological systems that turn people away from the truth of the gospel. And then lastly, there are the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This, it seems, are those demons that we find throughout the pages of the four gospels that influence individuals, unbelievers, and believers alike. But what I want you to notice is this. 
Who, what is the primary target of these spiritual powers? Definitely it is unbelievers whom they blind to the truth of the gospel, but we must recognize that it is we, the church, we are the primary target of these spiritual powers, whether we like it or not. Let me ask you a question. How many of you, raise your hand, have had a birthday in the last 12 months? <laughs> if you didn't raise your hand, I'd love to meet you afterwards. <laughs> if you raised your hand, you are human. And if you are human, you are the object of Satan's schemes. Again, believer or unbeliever alike. And that's why the Apostle Paul says, we do not wrestle, for our struggle is against. That is why Jesus, in looking at Peter, the one who had just proclaimed, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus says, Peter, upon this confession, I will build my church. And to that very individual, Jesus said, Satan desires to have you, to sift you like wheat. Referring not only to Peter, but also the other disciples that were around him as he speaks in the plural. Now, if that was the case for Peter and those first century disciples, is it any less the case for you and me as believers today? Is it any less the case for your family is it any less the case for the church, for this church? Why do we struggle? We struggle because Satan schemes. Notice with me verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the, say it with me, the what? The schemes of the devil. The term here that Paul uses is very interesting is it's the word from which we get our English word methods. The methods, the crafty methods and maneuvers, the deceitful strategies of the enemy in his underhanded attempts to deceive, to defraud, to divide, and to destroy. Just what are these schemes of the enemy? My wife and I, we've just moved back to the United States in the Atlanta area, back to the southeast in this region of the states where I was born. And the Civil War has always intrigued me. There's a lot of Civil War history both here but also in the Atlanta area. The Battle of Antietam, 1862, one of the bloodiest days of the Civil War and one of the bloodiest days ever on American soil. On that occasion, General George McClellan was able to hold back the forces of General Robert E. Lee in his attempted uh, initiative to move into Maryland, and McClellan was able to keep him back, and he pushed him back across the Potomac. How was he able to do that? Two Union soldiers found Lee's battle plans wrapped up in two cigars, mistakenly left by Confederate soldiers under a tree. My friends, you and I have and we know Satan's battle plans, and they're not wrapped up in cigars. 
They're found right here in the Word of God, and we'll be exploring exactly what they are in these coming weeks. They are overt schemes, such as the power encounters between Jesus and the various demonic forces throughout the Gospels. 25% of the actions, parables, messages on the part of Jesus, miracles, had to do with demons. The city of Ephesus itself, where these believers live to whom Paul is writing. Ephesus was a bastion of charlatans and sorcerers. It was the guardian of the great goddess Diana, also called Artemis. It was the crossroads for the occult and false religions. That's why in Acts chapter 19, that passage that gives us the background for Ephesians chapter 6, we find that believers, remember, these are believers, and yet all the while still involved in occult activity, they bring all of their occultic paraphernalia, and they have a great bonfire right in the middle of the city. And Luke goes out of his way to show that, wow, they burned up 50,000 days' wages. What was worth 50,000 days' wages in their occult paraphernalia. It was a massive ceremony of renunciation. Listen, any passive or active involvement in the occult, astrology, divination, psychic interest, for any believer must be renounced definitively and repented of. That is why in the New Testament, as people were baptized, they often said this, I renounce Satan and all his evil works. What about you? Satan's schemes are also, though, covert, and these are the ones that are actually more subtle and surprising. You know, Satan has never appeared to me and, and said, I am the great red dragon, Satan, with 25 other heinous names that the New Testament attributes to me, and I want to lead you astray. No, my friend, if you're looking for him to come in front of you, look out. He is coming from behind. That is why he always masquerades as an angel of light, 1 Corinthians 11. We need to be aware of his schemes, which we'll be talking about in these coming weeks. For right now, I'd like simply to remind us that they are on two different levels, threefold. My wife comes from central Missouri. It's cowboy country. Cowboy music, cowboy belts, cowboy boots, cowboy hats and lassos. I don't have a lasso here, but it's a rope that might resemble one. We have uh, one of the brother-in-laws of my wife is an authentic cowboy, and I guarantee you he can lasso a steer like nobody's business. When one lassos a steer, they bring it under their control, don't they? Lassos are, for the most part, made of three cords, sort of like this rope that I bought the other day at Home Depot. It has three cords. And in many ways, Satan's strategies are threefold. There is the world, there is the flesh, and then behind both, there is Satan himself. 
And his desire is to lasso you in and bring you under his control. Actually, the Apostle Paul speaks about these three areas in Ephesians chapter 2. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Notice what he says. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the course or the ways of this. There's number one, the world. And of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Paul tells us that before meeting Christ in the B.C. portion of our life, we were spiritually dead, deceived, and doomed. And it was a result of the work of the devil working through the surrounding world and the flesh. Now, the world is not the creation around us. That is good. It is rather the demonically inspired influence working in the world, which wants to hijack God's good creation. And then the flesh. The flesh doesn't refer to our bodies. Our bodies are good. It is rather the demonically inspired influence within us. And that's why the scriptures want you and me to always understand that all sin has at its root a demonic source. All sin has at, at its root a demonic source. Satan always wants to pour gasoline on the fire set aflame by the world and the flesh in our lives. And that's why John can say this in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. My friend, to dabble in sin is to dabble in the demonic. Well, there are three other cords that Satan uses in our lives. Not only himself, the world, and the flesh, but he uses three which are called temptation, deception, and accusation, as you see on the screen. And all of those, in order to bring you and me into greater and greater degrees of spiritual bondage. Peter, to whom Jesus says, Satan is asked to have you, to sift you like wheat. Peter tells us this in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary the devil prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Oh, that word devour is very strong. It speaks of swallowing something down, an animal, a predator that drinks down its prey. It's a term that was used in the Old Testament of a whale swallowing Jonah and of the sinking of Pharaoh's army. Yes, Satan wants to devour us because he ultimately wants to control us. 
We actually have an example of this in Acts chapter 5 and verse 3. Again, we have Peter speaking to a member of the church. Get this. Ananias and Sapphira were church members. And when Peter spoke to Ananias, what did he say? He said, how is it that Satan has filled your heart? Using the very same term that the apostle uses in Ephesians chapter 5.18 when he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Yes, our adversary's intent is to bring you and me under his influence in order that he might bring the believer under his control. But a very important question is this. While the devil can exert more and more influence in the believer's life, if we allow it, can we be owned by the adversary? The answer is absolutely not. And again, we have the words of Peter, who also writes so much about spiritual warfare. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Listen to these words. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver and gold, that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, handed down to you from your forefathers. You were redeemed, believer. Oh, that word is so very strong. It's a word that in the New Testament refers to slaves that are set up on a slave block and sold in the market. They were sold from one owner to another owner. And Peter is saying, you were in the slave market of sin and Satan, but you have been bought out of that slave market. You were bought in the slave market. You were bought out of the slave market. And then the New Testament uses a third word which implies that you were not only bought in the slave market, bought out of the slave market, but you were loosed and set free. Praise be to God because of Jesus Christ and the redemption that we have in Him. You and I can never, never, never be under the ownership of the adversary. However, we can open a door in our lives for him. What about you? Have you opened a door to the adversary through unforgiveness, through bitterness, through immorality, through occultic involvement? Are you aware of the subtle strategies of the enemy to attack you as an individual, your family, your loved ones? Do you know what it means to stand firm? Do you know how to stand firm? Verse 10, Ephesians 6, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, because the enemy schemes, you and I must stand. And believers, stand we can. It is mentioned four different times in these verses. Once in verse 11, twice in verse 13, once again in verse 14. We can stand, but not with our own resources. And that's why the apostle Paul here says, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. The term literally means to draw up in military formation and be ready for spiritual combat. 
but it is in the passive voice. In other words, allow yourself to be strengthened. And the way that you and I allow ourselves to be strengthened is by understanding the spiritual resources that are ours in Jesus Christ. In the Lord, that is, in Christ. In Christ, two of the biggest little words in the whole Bible. They are used more than 33 times in this letter to the Ephesians. And only as you and I begin to grasp the significance of what it means to be in Jesus Christ, are we able to stand firm against our adversary. Those two little words in Christ are like a small key that can open a door, allowing us to enter into a vast space full of spiritual treasure and riches. A few months ago, I was in Paris before we left to move back to the States with my daughter and son-in-law. We visited, as we have with several of our grandchildren, the Louvre in Paris. It's one of my favorite museums. You know, that property, the Louvre, just the palace itself, if it were to sell, would sell for $10 billion. And then you add all of the treasures inside, they're worth another $35 billion. It would take an individual earning $10 million a year over 4,000 years to have enough money to buy the Louvre. And yet I noticed that morning as we arrived early, right at the time of entry, an individual would take a small key and open a larger door through which we walked and we spent the entire day exploring the riches of that museum. That's what the words in Christ are about. As we understand who we are in Jesus Christ, we enter into a vast storehouse of spiritual wealth. That's why this epistle can be outlined in this way. The wealth of the Christian, chapters 1, 2, and 3. The walk of the Christian, chapters 4, 5, and the beginning of chapter 6. And finally, the warfare of the Christian. Or in the words of that famous Chinese pastor, Watchman Nee, we cannot stand against the enemy unless we first learn to sit. We cannot stand against the enemy unless we first learn to sit in our spiritual resources. And that is what Paul tells us in the next part of Ephesians chapter 2. Look at it very, very briefly with me. Where we left off in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4, but now we come to verse 5. But, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love for us, he made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. And verse 6, and God raised us up together with Christ and seated us together with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. While in the beginning verses of this chapter, chapter 2, we are dead, deceived, and spiritually doomed, here we are made alive, raised, and seated with Jesus Christ. Believer, we no longer fight against our enemy for victory, 
You and I fight from victory. You and I, because of this redeeming work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we fight from the spiritual high ground. As we were engaged in spiritual warfare, whether in Europe or here, but particularly during our time in France, at one point my wife took pen in hand and she wrote these verses. Listen. Do I dare to live the life of God, a child and not a slave, in full possession of his rights for which the Lord Jesus paid? Do I dare to put to death those things that draw me to this earth, that make me less than what I am, a child of heavenly birth? Do I dare to speak with gentle words and walk in obedient joy, to be a channel of the life no power can destroy? Does it seem strange to venture this way, to live a life of peace, peace with God, peace within, yet facing the enemy? Oh, the strangeness felt is it's just a sign of a life once enslaved to sin. But remember, that life has been on the cross where the battle our Savior did win. So dare to press on in newness of life, each day live for God in His grace till the old and familiar seem distant and strange and the new is put firmly in place. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this instruction that the Apostle Paul gives us in this most important passage. And though we are well aware from his words of the reality of our adversary and the struggle in which we are engaged, we are thankful for who we are in Christ and what we have received in Jesus Christ. By your grace, based upon that, may we dare, may we dare to live boldly, courageously, entering into this spiritual combat with the full resources that you have left us. Let me ask you this morning, can you say, I dare? Can you say, I dare, yes, to recognize the reality of the spiritual combat around me? Yes, I dare to identify the schemes of the enemy and repent of any area in which I have given him open access in my life. Yes, I dare to wage the good warfare from the spiritual high ground. Thank you for the resources you have given to us in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.